Good evening, everyone. This is Tala with Drive Through Therapy. Thank you so much for joining me tonight on this very important episode that I've been wanting to do for some time. But uh, since finishing the documentary that was about uh, two victims that Michael Jackson was molesting, or sexually abusing, actually, f- full blown sexual abuse, it, it came to me that I think it's time to do this episode. And I was a sex offender therapist for uh, a few years. And during that time, I had eight hours of back-to-back verbal accounts from the perpetrators themselves about the strategies that they used, uh, in this case, in sexual abuse of children. And, well, there were multiple types of perpetrations, whether it's towards adults, elderly, children, but today we're talking about sexual abuse with children. So, um, but yes, they, they definitely had to discuss what they did in detail. And this was eight hours a day for a few years. I probably was able to do this because I have had no judgment on sex offenses or sex offenders before that because I did not experience that myself and so there was no bias there that I could work with which made it probably less challenging for me to work with that population. Um, It was challenging for other people who have experienced sexual abuse to work with that population as you can imagine but I can tell you on my end um, it didn't really stop me from working with this population because in my mind I thought well uh, I would probably be the perfect candidate to work with them because there's no real opinion about them rather it's treatment that I'm providing and I have to be non-judgmental as a therapist to be able to provide the treatment ethically so that's a little bit of a background on part of my career and also why I'm doing this today. Even sitting for eight hours a day back to back in those sessions, I collected information that I thought one day I'm going to tell parents about this. Maybe this could help parents prevent something from happening if they knew this. Even when working with victims later on, uh, Victims also can benefit from this information because they are going to be relieved of the responsibility that they thought they may have had, if they thought they may have had about this, this abuse. So knowing how a perpetrator thinks is both beneficial for a parent and is also beneficial for the victim. It'll provide relief for this victim as well, um, because they're able to relieve themselves, like I said, from the responsibility that they did anything to um, make this situation happen. No matter what they believe in their mind, they they did not. I can tell you back-to-back sessions with perpetrators, hearing them talk about the offenses, the crimes, the assaults, and the abuse of their victims that these victims had no way of knowing, had uh, no way of defending themselves. Because 
in reality, it, one of the reasons why it's a sex offense, it's a crime because it's a non-consenting person and a child is automatically non-consenting individual. An adult, more force is usually used and so that's also where the non-consent happens as well, which makes it a crime. I want to make sure that I, I give you this information in the rawest form, in the most honest form, not just as a clinician, but also as a person, human being that hears, that enters a dark world and gets to take a peek at this darkness and comes back out to let you know what I heard and I saw. So, I don't know if that makes sense, but <laughs> I hope it does. Um, so, yeah. When we're talking about child sexual abuse, I really want to make it clear that it is, it consists of anything that an adult would do with another adult. Okay. So sexual penetration with a genitalia, sexual penetration with the use of an object or digitally with fingers, um, oral sex, uh, anal sex, torture and sex, uh, Anything that you would think an adult would do with a, with an, with another adult, consenting adult, is the same thing that could happen in sexual abuse of children. Okay? So, I don't want to sugarcoat it for you, and sometimes our society does that by calling it molestation. That, I understand why we have to like, sugarcoat it for society, but sexual abuse is real, and it happens to children, and we need to kind of be raw about the information that we are given. We need to be honest about it. So this way you know the severity and the weight that this information holds and what really happens with children, to children. Okay. So I want to give you some numbers. I'm not really a huge fan of numbers, but in the case of sexual abuse, yeah, I, I, I want to give you an idea of how often this occurs and how real this is, okay? And I got this from um, multiple resources um, on the internet, but the main one is the RAIN uh, website and also the National Center for Victims of Crime website as well. So those are my two references that I'm using. And they kind of suggested different numbers, but... Um, you, I want to kind of give you the gist of it. Uh, this is not really about statistics here. It's about child abuse and perpetration and how a perpetrator thinks to so we can prevent sexual abuse, okay? So I'm just giving you the numbers to give you an idea of the reality of it. So uh, it says that one in three girls are sexually abused before age 18. And one in five boys are sexually abused before the age of 18 years old. Most vulnerable ages usually are between 7 to 13 years old. And I will talk about why that's very common, age for sexual abuse. Uh, RAIN website uh, states 93% of victims know their perpetrator. That's a huge claim. 
And I think that's pretty conservative. It is very, very, very common that nine, that, that the victim knows their perpetrator, especially with children, because there's a lot involved in perpetrating against a child that requires, that is less violent. So they would have to know them in order to do what they do. So it's very rare uh, when it comes to child sexual abuse that a perpetrator uses violence. That's not usually the common use of those crimes, even though that's what we watch on TV. We watch uh, sexual abuse um, as being violent. It's like the stranger danger myth, um, which is not the common um, reality. It says uh, 80% of the perpetrators were a parent. A parent. In the prison I worked at, I would say that's a really good number uh, of uh, to describe the population I worked with, the male population of sex offenders that I worked with. Most of them, the majority of them, were either a boyfriend uh, of the mother of the victim or an actual parent of the victim, biological parent. Six percent of the reported sex offenses, child abuse sex offenses, were by relatives, other relatives. Four percent were unmarried partners of a parent. Okay, so that's the boyfriend. I think that number should be a little higher, honestly. I don't know. It's very difficult to collect data about sexual abuse because uh, only 30% of child sexual abuse is actually reported. The majority of the time, it is not. It is not. So when it comes to men and women being perpetrators, it's kind of rounded out uh, 47,000 men uh, have perpetrated when it comes to, I think it's the last, within the last year or so. I don't know when the data was collected versus 5,000 women being, uh, being perpetrators. So it is most commonly, uh, a male offense than a female offender in this case. Okay. In this type of crime. All right. So I hope this kind of gives you an idea of the numbers and, and, and just how, real it is. I mean, this is one in three girls. One in three girls are sexually um, abused before the age of 18. That is significant. One in five boys are sexually abused before the age of 18. So really important, really important. How a perpetrator thinks. Now, this is what we're going to talk about. This is what you guys need to know is how this perpetrator thinks. What did I learn being eight hours a day, five days a week, working with perpetrators, listening to their, their crimes in detail, ha- having to uh, m- kind of make them get the details out. And if they miss something, because I would see their files, if they miss something, I would have to tell them to recall it the way it was um, described by the victim or how it was reported. So what I learned is that... Sexual abuse is a crime of opportunity most of the time. Most of the time. I know we get stuck on labeling, you know, 
sex offenders as pedophilic, but it's it's not a reality. Pedophilia implies a certain a- attraction to a certain age group, an adult attraction to a, ser- a certain age group, and usually it's a the prepubescent age group. Okay, that's a, that's pedophilia. So it only covers one small portion of the population of children because there's actually infantophilia, which is for infants, toddlers, uh, or attraction towards infants and tall toddlers. Okay, so you got infantophilia for infant and toddlers. You got pedophilia for the prepubescent age, and then you've got hebophilia for uh, adolescence, meaning if male is attracted to a female adolescent, um, or a male attracted to a male adolescent would be erectophilia. So this is what it is called. These are what these offenses called or these disorders are called. And they're usually are an attraction, an actual attraction. This person seeks this age group out. This person has uh, a way of communicating with them and grooming them. And it's just like, that's that they're just, that's what they do. And that's not the majority of sex offenders or sex offenses that are towards children. They actually happen as an opportunistic type of offense or crime. Sex offenses usually happen in a home where there's little supervision, very poor boundaries. The majority of the cases I worked with had drug drugs involved in the sexual offense, but usually it's the person doing drugs, the, the perpetrator doing the drugs. Let's see what else. So it was really an opportunistic type of situation. The husband maybe is uh, not getting enough affection from the wife. And of course, a child is adoring of this adult father figure. And this father figure finds it as an opportunity because they're not emotionally getting their needs met by an adult. So they use a child to do that. Okay. So again, unlike society, uh, the, the media portrays it, it's not necessarily pedophilia. It's not an attraction. They don't go out and seek it. Most of the time, it doesn't even, they don't even, they may not even like children that way, but it's the opportunity. It's the lack of boundaries. And it also has a lot to do with the perpetrator, with the perpetrator as well and their, um, and their level of emotional development. Okay. Um, and what I mean by emotional development is that a lot of the times when you speak to uh, a sex offender or child abuse specifically, child uh, a perpetrator, uh, they're not em- emotionally developed. They're not as emotionally developed. There's a level of immaturity because somehow, think about it, they have to relate to or sexualize a child. So there's some kind of emotional or stagnation in their emotional development. Something is is not fully developed. Okay. So keep that in mind. So like I said, they think an opportunity, an opportunity. It's the boyfriend that uh, can see uh, an opportunity when they get to, to, to see a, the adoration of a kiddo or they're sitting on their lap and all of a sudden they start sexualizing this child. Okay. If you have to, if you, if your mind goes to sexualizing a child, please understand that you're emotionally 
underdeveloped to be able to do that. There's something not fully developed in there, right? Okay, uh, the next way that a perpetrators, when it comes to sexual abuse, strategizes is that they use the child's goodness or the child's innocent nature to their advantage. A couple of things play in this type of offense that really doesn't have to be spoken. One's, one is the idea that we teach children that they are to obey an adult. You don't disrespect an adult, right? And we kind of hammer that down to no end sometimes. We just tell them they need to obey, they need to obey, they need to follow the rules. You need to respect an adult. And um, when they resist, we show them that they shouldn't resist. And so this is where this perpetrator takes a great opportunity to go in there and use what was already taught to this child against them. Okay, so they use their good nature against them, their innocence against them, their, their naiveness, lack of knowledge against them. Their need to please against them. And if you think about um, the age of prepubescence, you know, you think about a, a girl about six years old, you know, you'll you'll know if you have one or if there's one around you that they really don't stop talking. They are um, very upbeat in nature. And at some sometimes part of their emotional development is that they're very social and and they're very um, interested and they could even be perceived as a little uh, friendly. And that's age appropriate. That's age appropriate. But the wrong person that sees it can use it against them, can use it against them. You need to keep that in mind. So when you're, when we're raising our children to obey, 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 how much are they allowed to have their own beliefs and their own thoughts without you interrupting them as a parent? Just saying. But it's good to keep in mind, parents. Okay, the next um, point I want to make about the thought process that goes into uh, the perpetrator's approach towards a child is called grooming. And grooming is basically the uh, the, the use of gifts to the victims, the use of giving them attention, for example, giving them gifts, giving them time with the uh, Xbox. I've uh, seen it where they give them candy. They give them, the big one is attention. They give them a lot of attention. They know, the perpetrator knows how to pick them, how to pick those kiddos that nobody's really paying attention to them and they're starving for attention and that adult gives them attention and the child then feels obligated to that adult, to the perpetrator. Again, it's used against them. So I hope that makes sense. Grooming is a huge thing that they use. That's why this crime is not a violent crime most of the time. It is by someone you know. They groom you. The perpetrator will groom the child. They'll even groom the parents, which is pretty important to to remember. They'll groom the parents. They'll seduce the parents and the child and mold them to what they want them to think and and do. Um, Secrecy is a big part of this offense because... This is where it thrives. When people have a hard time communicating openly in that family, this is where sex offenses really thrive. When the child feels the pressure that they have to keep a secret, that um, they're threatened into it sometimes, a lot of the times, because the perpetrator may say something like, 
well if people find out what they were doing what we're doing that you you'd get in trouble too and so the child thinks that's it's their they're to blame for this and they don't want to get in trouble so they'll keep the secret and what we want to be aware of as parents is the the thing we want to give our children is their ability to think and feel for themselves to show them non-judgment and unconditional love. And that's kind of what determines whether the child usually discloses something or not. Because most of the time, the child does not disclose it. Something is found out somehow. Um, And we know that the victims don't disclose because like I said, we only know 30% of the the offenders, the sex offenders. Uh, We don't know the rest. We have not caught them. Okay, so... The secrecy also thrives in families because sometimes you'll know the perpetrator in the family. People will know them and we, we bring our children around them and we don't, we never really uh, discuss it. We don't say it out loud. Sometimes when it comes to male, I'm just using male uh, because I, I worked with males, uh, male sex offender population, not females. So I'm just using males as the example, but The perpetrators in this case will stay in the family and nobody reports them and they hide. And then sometimes the, you know, that could be the father of the the victim, for example, and the mother decides to continue to stay with the father. Um, And that's very damaging for the, for the victim because in a lot of ways, you know, they think that the mother sold him out to meet her own needs and that she didn't protect them. And, um, which you can probably understand when you hear that a lot of the victims that I work with, uh, this, this has happened to them and the victim has a hard time forgiving mom, you know, who should have protected them once she knew. Right. Uh, and, they can understand the perpetrator. They have a good idea what the perpetrator did. They, they, they have that really good there in their head. They can, they are, they're allowed to feel this hate towards them. But when it comes to their mother, they're struggling with that. They're like, I can't hate her, but I can't like her either. And they don't know where they're at. And so it's very confusing for them, very hard for them to also forgive their mom. They're very angry towards the mother usually if she decides to stay in that relationship with the abuser there. Okay. Which happens a lot, actually. Happens a lot. Um, Many uh, of the uh, mothers of the victims themselves were still calling the perpetrators in prison and sending them money and visiting with them and what have you. And, And so it's terrible. It's terrible, but it's very true, very honest account there. I'm not, I'm not lying to you. It happens and you need to know. So grooming involves the slow approach by the perpetrator in the physical sense, in the sexual sense. They might start by touching them, touching the child a little bit, kind of slowly uh, testing the boundaries, crossing the boundaries a little at a time to where the child thinks that they participated in it, but they really didn't. Back rubs, touching over clothing is how it happens kind of at first. Uh, also, pornography can be used. 
masturbation, let me teach you how to masturbate kind of conversations or, um, you know, using the child's curiosity against them. So a lot of the times I had to challenge the offender to talk about their grooming. They just could not, (laughs) they, they had, they could not really disclose that part or admit to that part easily. It was, it was very rough for them to disclose that they actually thought about, premeditated about to some extent, the, the approach in comforting the child with the touch, in comforting the child with, um, the, the boundary crossing and normalizing the sexual behavior, helping them keep it a secret. So very important to talk to your children about the physical boundaries. It's to me, age appropriate labeling of body parts. It needs to happen and your boundaries and who, who's allowed to give you a bath and who's not allowed to give you a bath. Who's allowed to touch you? Who's not allowed to touch you? And if somebody threatens you, as in, if you're talking to your child, you need to tell them if somebody's threatening you, you let me know and I will kick their ass. You talk to them just like you let them know just like that. Because in a lot of the cases, the children are afraid to tell the parents. So be real with them. Tell them that you will protect them, that you will defend them and teach them about their boundaries and what they're allowed to be uh, private about, what what is theirs for them to know, for them to have and what they shouldn't share with other people. Okay, so I don't think based on what happens to children often, I don't think it's ever a problem to teach a child about their boundaries. I don't, I don't, I don't ever have a problem with that based on what I've heard for you for years. So please do that. Please do that. Age appropriately teach your children that, um, they need to trust their feelings and their intuition that it's, if it doesn't feel right to them, it probably isn't to keep an open, uh, discussion about if somebody's threatening them, you are going to handle that problem. You come and let me know, kid, and I will, I will handle that problem if anybody's threatening you. Um, and if a child ever discloses sexual abuse to you, you are going to believe them. It's so interesting how I just made that command to you because I have no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You're going to believe them. Okay? You're going to believe them. It's very detrimental in this situation for you to do that because years and years later, when I'm sitting with victims, they often recall vividly, which happens to be the most painful memory they have, is when they told their parent that they've been sexually abused or they tried to tell their parent they were sexually abused, the parent didn't believe them. So that's why I'm telling it to you just like that. You're going to believe them. You're going to believe them and follow through with whatever you need to follow through after that. Okay. So, um, I can't stress that enough. I can't stress that enough. I've heard enough victims talk about that and have to work through that difficulty, through that pain. Why did my mom not protect me? Why did my parent not protect me? So, um, be careful with that. Also, part of the grooming is, um, and sometimes it's, happens, I think, and I kind of encountered this multiple times working with sex offenders with child abuse uh, cases, they're 
I call them the single mom hero. They pick a single mom out that's like overstressed, overworked. And this mom finally gets this guy who wants to help her, wants to be there and pick up the kids and help her change the diapers and give them baths and all that. But that's also where the grooming comes in too. This kid is left alone with a stranger and the mom allows them to um, be given a bath by this stranger because this mom is so exhausted and she wants to believe this fantasy of Oh, he's, he's a, he, he can be a father, call him dad and all that. Um, and the mom is really at this point ba- meeting her own needs without thinking that the children have feelings and have a need for privacy, have a need for, um, safety and security with their own bodies and their own life and their own environment that they live in. A question that is usually asked by most people when it comes to sexual perpetrators, they want to know why do they do it? And this is an interesting question because no matter the reason, it's not a good enough reason to ever, ever, ever touch or harm a child. Now, it's a selfish crime. Okay. This type of crime is a very selfish, self-seeking crime. There is a lot of justifications that this perpetrator has to have in their brain. They're doing a lot of work, a lot of work, whether it's through fantasizing about the child, um, slowly in their mind as they're working on the boundaries outside of them breaking it down with the child, breaking those boundaries down with the child. They're also doing it in their mind too. They're just using justifications to break down their own boundaries and justify their perpetration. So again, there is no great fabulous reason why a person would harm another person, but there's work that goes into it. A lot of denial on the perpetrator's side, a lot of lying to themselves occurs to make this perpetration happen. A lot, a whole lot. And we spend most of the treatment time with a perpetrator getting them to admit and catch those little justifications that they make um, and the lies that they tell themselves mostly um, to make them kind of justify the perpetration. So this is part of treatment, actually. Part of treatment. Finally, is there a cure for such an offense or disorder, sexual disorder, like pedophilia, for example, or even sexual perpetrators in general? Is there a cure for that? And the answer is uh, complicated because once you open the door sexually, right, for an adult or a child, you cannot close it. You cannot undo it. You cannot unexperience an experience, unfortunately. That door is opened. But with treatment, the perpetrator gets to catch their own justifications, call, call them out and take responsibility for them verbally in front of other perpetrators. So they actually usually help each other out, um, identifying their own lies. And so that's part of treatment. And 
I would rather them go through something like that, some kind of treatment than nothing at all. Because a lot of the times they're just released with the same thought patterns that they came in with. Nothing really is learned. If anything is learned is more aggression and hate towards a system that put them there, but not taking responsibility for what they did. So even when it comes to the victim, unfortunately, that sexual doors open for them too. They've been sexually stimulated and biologically, sometimes it feels good. And they may have sexual behaviors afterwards towards other people, or they may self-stimulate and um, they may act out in some way. We don't, we don't, it's different in different children, but later it will turn into possibly risky behavior, self-destructive behavior, low self-esteem, poor sexual boundaries, or very rigid sexual boundaries. Um, just this could happen without treatment, without the victim learning to understand that they have no responsibility in what happened to them, no part in it at all. And learning to heal, learning to heal from that is their journey. So let's share this, this episode with anybody that you think might need this information that would include victims, parents, really anyone. I really thought about whether I should record this or would I do it justice? All I want to do is make it very urgent for you as a parent and help validate victims and what they've experienced and put a name to it. So that's really the purpose of this episode. I'm a parent today. And I wasn't a parent then when I was working with sex offenders. And I could tell you now that these stories have affected me as a parent and it helps me pay attention more. I may not be able to protect my child from all the experiences, negative experiences for that matter, that um, he may experience, but I'm grateful that I was exposed to this type of darkness so that I'm aware. So whatever happens, I'll, I'll be more aware and urgent in the way I respond. So thank you guys so much for um, hanging in there for this longer than usual episode, but you understand why. It, it had to get done. It had to get done. And we're having an honest talk about a human crime that is very real. I'm sending you love and healing this has been an episode of Drive-Thru Therapy. Thank you.